Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we talked to Ben Vandermeer from the New Statesman data journalism team about a new project that looks into how many years of lives have been lost to COVID-19. Alva reports from Hartlepool, where there'll be a by-election next week. And you ask us, who's in the running to replace Arlene Foster? We're delighted to be joined on today's New Statesman podcast by... Ben Vandermeer, a data journalist for The New Statesman, who's been working on an interesting project um, for weeks now, um, which is just about to um, be published. It's it's about the years lost to COVID. And you've done some exclusive analysis of COVID-19 deaths in England and Wales. Is that right? Which, which you've used to work out how many years each victim has lost of their lives to the disease. Yeah, so we we took into account the the sort of age and the gender of everyone who died in England and Wales, as well as the likelihood that they had comorbidities. And we found that on average, people lost almost a decade of life from COVID-19 and with a total years lost of around 1.35 million, which is, you know, a huge sum of years lost. It's, it's not really a comparison with the flu as people like to say sometimes, which is around 250,000 years lost each year. What really struck me when you came to me with this research, when when you and your colleague, Josh Raymond, who has done some excellent animated graphics on this piece, which I encourage all of our listeners to go and look at, is yes, what you were saying about how what you found that each person has lost a decade of their life kind of undermines that message that you sometimes get from people who are more skeptical about lockdowns and things who say, well, you know, most of these people would have died soon anyway, or sort of in a way devaluing the lives of the elderly or those with underlying health conditions. Yeah. I mean, the majority of people lost more than half a decade of their life. And obviously the average was close to a decade itself. So really, that's just really not compatible with the idea that these people were going to die anyway i mean during the start of the pandemic or over june we had people saying i think in the telegraph that the overall death toll might be half of what scientists were saying because these people would have died anyway um what we found was just i think only around less than six percent of victims would have died within the same year anyway so it's just completely incomparable to what people were saying before and the Prime Minister obviously has been in the headlines this week and uh, being accused of, of saying that he'd rather let the bodies pile high than um, put England into a third lockdown. Could you tell us a bit about what the actual reality is like for victims of COVID-19 dying in hospital and for their families? Because, um, you know, this has affected so many people and it, and it, is, it is a horrible 
process, isn't it? And you've spoken not only to bereaved family members, but also to a palliative care doctor who was working on COVID wards, who told you a bit about what what these kind of deaths are like. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he called them bodies was itself quite telling. You know, these were real people. These were people, often people who had, you know, a lot to look forward to. One of the people that we spoke to was Gita Kalsi. She was only 45 when she died this January and is one of those people that died during England's third national lockdown. She was about to adopt her first child. She had just, with her husband, redecorated their house for the child and built a nursery. You know, these, these were people with lives to live. But also, I think, speaking to families of those who are lost and speaking to Dr. Clark, something which the data can't really show and which we tried to show through the case studies is that not only is the the argument that these people were going to die anyway, not only is that factually wrong, but it's uh, just so morally wrong because, you know, for the families that they left behind, really, they would have taken any time with these people, um, any time at all. And there's something also about dying with COVID, which is so much more difficult than uh, dying in other ways. I mean, the fact that these people, that they weren't able to see their family in their last days or weeks as they uh, lay in hospital, it really had a huge effect on their quality of death and sort of how their family was able to say goodbye to them. We should say that the Prime Minister has denied using those words, although a number of sources have have said that he did. Um, Stephen or Alva, do you want to ask Ben any questions about his research? I know you've you've yet to be able to see the piece yet because it's not it's not out at the time that we're recording. When you sort of embarked on this, is this roughly what you were expecting, or was it? Were there any particular surprises to you in the in the data? I was surprised that the average years of life lost was so high because we sort of we have this image of the victims as being overwhelmingly the elderly and those with sort of multiple comorbidities, was in reality, you know, that was a large proportion of the victims. But there was there was also a large number of people who, you know, would have lived for many decades longer without COVID. Um, and again, it's not to say that, that those lives were any more valuable, but it's just to show that the sort of the popular conception of what has happened over the past year is just wrong on a lot of counts. Yeah. One of, one of the things that was quite striking also was the sort of the gender difference. I think whether you look at the median or the mean sort of number of years lost, for each man, they lost an extra year of their life compared to women, which is a separate issue from the number who died. We weren't able to look at ethnicity, which I think would have been much more striking. The data just wasn't there. Um, but if you consider the fact that it was 9% of deaths among white men were under 64. But for black men, the figure was 23%. So the years of life lost for ethnic minorities and, and black people in particular in this country would have been far, far higher than for, uh, for their white counterparts. I suppose my question would be, Ben, and, and feel free to say that you just don't know, but I'm mm. wondering if from this data, there are any lessons that we can draw from what the what the unlocking and the vaccination program means or doesn't mean in that the argument is that since the vast majority of people who be considered vulnerable, so older people and people with underlying health conditions, if they've already been vaccinated, then, then unlocking and allowing, I suppose, the virus to spread more quickly shouldn't have too bad an impact on, on serious illness or death. But I'm wondering from what's your impression in terms of are you looking at people that you considered 
that who would have been considered healthy in their 30s, for example, um, dying before their time in this data? Or, or would you be kind of confident that the vaccination program and the unlocking is, is, is continuing at the right pace? So the data doesn't shed any sort of new light on the, on the proportion of people who are young and healthy dying. But um, certainly, I think one thing that the piece does bring out is the fact that, you know, there are, there are only sort of around 20 deaths occurring each day now. And it seems like a very small number in comparison to what we had before. But it's still, you know, it's still 20 deaths. And for, you know, then these, it's many more years of life lost. So it's, uh, it's definitely important not to sort of write off the pandemic as solved just yet. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. And the research is fascinating. And I, um, uh, I encourage all our listeners to read the piece when it comes out, which will be on Friday morning this week. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. So in case any of our listeners had picked up on on the fact that Alva um, doesn't sound as crystal clear as usual, it's because she is out and about in Hartlepool, where there'll be a by-election next week. Um, Alva, what are you picking up and what have you been doing there? Yeah, um, so I'm broadcasting live from the Hartlepool Marina in a pub garden. There's no one else here <laughs> and it has just stopped raining. The, I think the main thing to say is that definitely there's going to be a low turnout in this election. That I think people don't seem super motivated or interested either way. And frankly, neither candidate from, the, from either main party is is particularly impressing on on the doorstep. So the Labour candidate, Paul Williams, who we've talked about before on this podcast, is a a new candidate for Labour. The the last Labour MP had to step down, which triggered this by-election. He's not really impressing. Um, the, The thing that people, more than anything else, are saying is that they just don't understand why someone who lost his seat in Stockton is um is standing here <laughs> you know if he's not good enough for them why is he good enough for us I, that's the sort of the recurring message and um I think there's a real you know there there are very like visible problems in Hartlepool um like a lot of businesses have really suffered um with the pandemic the local magistrates court was closed by the Conservative government a few years ago, which is like very much front and centre in people's minds. And then there's the ongoing issue of the lack of hospital in Hartlepool and on various hospital changes. So I think that there's a sort of feeling of dissatisfaction with Labour that's coming across very strongly, really. But then also, I don't think people are very impressed by Jill Mortimer, the Conservative candidate. She hasn't been very visible. People here will tell you that she's not local. Um, although clearly someone in CCHQ thought that she was local enough to stand. And so it's a sort of, um, it's an interesting one. The, the other thing to say is that there are loads of independents standing and lots of smaller parties. Um, so you've got the STP, the Northeast Party, you have the ex-husband of, or of David Cameron's former deputy chief of staff. You have the Northern Independence Party. Um, so it's a kind of vibrant election. And the thing about Hartlepool is that for people who are interested in, in this kind of thing, they'll probably know already that Hartlepool elected a, a monkey as mayor or you know elected someone standing as the monkey mascot of the local team as mayor and then re-elected him twice. Um, so there's a kind of independent spirit in Hartlepool among the electorate, which is definitely coming across. People are really interested by all of the independent candidates. 
I don't think that there's any real expectation that they can win, but it just means that it's not really clear whether this complete apathy towards Labour and the Conservatives will result in in Labour holding this or or the Conservatives um, gaining it. Okay, what did you make of him? How how did he? How was he on the doorstep? Um, so I I was with him for a kind of sort of managed visit. This is a very, um, very trademark coronavirus pandemic. I don't think we'll be seeing any sort of campaigning like this in a few years time. But literally, David Lammy came up from London to campaign with him and they, they stood on a street corner um, for their big visit. And um, they were outside a, a building that had been a cannabis farm and that was shut down. And they, they visited some with some local council candidates and then just some local people involved um, in community work were telling them about efforts around crime and so on. I think everyone would tell you that Paul Williams is quite smooth. <laughs> and so it's the question is whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think the thing, the thing that really was clear is that both David Lammy and Paul Williams are correctly diagnosing the problems in, in Hartlepool. For example, that magistrate's court, which people have mentioned quite a lot, but I think that the thing that they would say not to not to Paul Williams's face is that they don't necessarily trust Labour to fix it, and that their their feeling of of apathy extends to Labour too, and um, with with Labour councillors and um, and a Labour candidate. So this isn't a comment on on Paul Williams in particular, but it's really hard to sort of see him connecting with people when he's standing so far away. Mm. And he has a sort of machine behind him and he has a mask on. So I think that, you know, he says the right things, but I think it would be difficult to really inspire people with a campaign in a context like this. What I think is is interesting, um, so I haven't been to Hartlepool in this election because having gone to it in a previous one, I mean, it really is far away from everywhere, right? It's far away from everywhere else in the conurbation, it's far away from London, it is just really poorly served by public transport. And it's just, and I suspect that's one of the reasons why it has such a, uh, an interesting history of electing independence. But um, the thing I found weird when I've been out and about in this election is how unlike an election it feels. Alva, having been, you know, out and about during the 2019 election, does, does this place that, you know, the might of the two parties has come down on, does it feel election-y there? No, I mean, I think that the only thing that feels election-y is that in the Premier Inn where I'm staying, there are definitely lots of other London journalists and the odd um, activist or person involved with either Labour or the Conservatives. In terms of like the, the mood on the doorstep, it's really, diff- you couldn't overstate how much things are still closed here. Yeah, there aren't really that many places to sit outside and eat. So where there are, there's a bit of a buzz, but in quite a lot of the main centres, you don't get any sort of sense of it. I think um, if you uh, if you speak to people, they still are very very much aware that there's a by-election and that they have so many candidates to choose from and that they also have to elect a mayor and a police and crime commissioner and so on. But I just I don't think that I don't think it compares at all to the 2019 general election, which is my only proper point of comparison, having done visits in a similar way for that one it's a strange one because I feel like this must be the place in the country that's getting the most attention out of anywhere like as a you know for comparison 
when I was in Northeast Fife in 2019, at that point, that was the most marginal seat in the UK because the SNP candidate had won it by only two votes in the previous election. So you literally in, you know, St. Andrews is is not super easy to get to, even though it's lovely when when you when you get there, like it was chock-a-block with journalists. I bumped into Hugo Rifkind from The Times. CNN were there. I, you know, it was it was attracting international press interest. And yet this is the sort of the headline by-election. And even though I think there, there, there has been quite a big degree of media interest, it's only there if you look for it and you try to seek out the campaigns. Um, otherwise, it, yeah, it doesn't really feel very election-y. That's so interesting. I remember when I went to Hartlepool for the um, last election and it was a seat of interest because of the Brexit factor, because of by how much the the seat voted Brexit and because it was the Brexit Party's sort of key target at the time. And there was so much press coming to the town and there, there was an I, th- I picked up, I don't know whether you've had any of this um, speaking to people, Ava, but I picked up a lot of sort of like um, exasperation about the fact that it was such a such a common spot on the political safari, if you like, um, from people because they did, they had had that um, that Channel 4 documentary. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about universal credit there um, that had, I think it was called Skint Britain. It was something that's quite controversial in the in the town because um, it didn't paint uh, the town in a particularly good light, kind of looking at how universal credit, because it was one of the pilot towns for universal credit, had sort of taken money away from the people who needed it most. But it sort of presented it in quite a um, benefit streety kind of way, as some of those programmes sometimes do. And I remember there was just a little bit of, of a feeling that people were just fed up with constantly um, being sort of defined by this national media spotlight. So it's interesting now. I remember I remember interviewing Mike Hill, who was the Labour MP for for Hartlepool, and he was he was sort of complaining about how many different <laughs> how many different media organisations had already been up and from sort of even from abroad as well, from like around the world, they had come to kind of view it as the the epicentre of Brexit Britain and things. So it's interesting that what you say is that it doesn't feel so much like that now. And I wonder if that's because okay. of the fact that this is I think we've spoken about these elections before in the sense that will they be the real sort of like post-Brexit elections where Brexit is is no longer the, the priority voting issue. You know, if it ever was, you know, it, it didn't seem to turn out to be last time. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us. You ask us. 
So it's kind of, yeah, we, the same question from, from multiple uh, people. So we have who will win the DUP leadership contest from Zoe Burtwistle. And could you give us a run through of the likely runners and riders in the DUP leadership election? And whoever it is, is it likely to make much difference from Mark Knight? So I thought we would smoosh those all into one composite question. So for those of you who have missed it, North Island's first minister and the leader of the DUP, Arlene Foster, has announced she'll step down basically in the wake of a very well organised and therefore quite dignified, but ultimately a coup from within her party. And there now may or may not be a leadership election. Uh, usually the party has elected its leaders by acclamation. Um, Alva, take us through the sort of most likely candidates to emerge from this process. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry, a seagull has just tried to interrupt me. Um, what is quite likely, and that's worth worth saying first, is that it's quite possible that the roles of First Minister of Northern Ireland, who has to be obviously based in Stormont, um, will be separated from the leader of the DUP, who could quite likely be based in Westminster from now on. So I think that the, the clear front runner to be the head of the DUP at Stormont and the First Minister would be Edwin Poots, who is a controversial character. The readers of our morning call email will know that among other things he's the current agriculture minister but among other things he's quite well known for continuing a ban on gay men giving blood in Northern Ireland beyond when it was ended in England, Scotland and Wales and um, that was subject to a high court judgment which found that that ban was quote-unquote irrational. He is notably to Arlene Foster's right on social issues in case you couldn't tell and I think unless there's a major upset, it just seems like it's likely to be him. The only caveat to that is that obviously, given the, the complicated power sharing arrangements in Northern Ireland, the DUP as the biggest party can nominate someone to be first minister. But it does have to be approved by vote by the entire assembly or, you know, by by a majority weighted to the to the different nationalist unionist splits, which means that Sinn Féin wouldn't necessarily, and, and, you know, including other parties as well, they wouldn't necessarily just vote him in as first minister with no concessions. So it's a possibility that Sinn Féin would maybe ask for some commitments on either the Irish language or on gay rights or on abortion rights or something. It's very possible that the, the DUP wouldn't give in to those concessions, which would mean that we would be heading for a Stormont Assembly election, election because that's what the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis, would have to do off the back of that. So that's the path outlined by Edwin Poots, with a caveat that, you know, maybe another candidate could emerge, but that's certainly the consensus so far. And then in Westminster, Geoffrey Donaldson and Gavin Robinson who are both MPs, seem likely to seek to lead the party overall from Westminster. I think Geoffrey Donaldson would be favoured over Gavin Robinson. And I think that there's also, you know, a potential battle between Edwin Poots and Geoffrey Donaldson there as to whether, you know, potentially Edwin Poots could be both leader of the DUP and first minister like Arlene Foster has been. Yeah, those are the main splits. And in terms of whether it would make a difference, I suppose they're all slightly to Arlene Foster's right. She is a relative moderate within her party. So I think that, yeah, there are different personal loyalties behind each of those candidates. But I don't think that in terms of politics, 
there, there would be a huge difference between them. What would be the benefit of, of, of splitting, you know, the first minister role from leader role? I mean, does it does it come out of Arlene Foster's failings to sort of or, or as she's perceived to have failed to <laughs> to underestimate the risk of conservative Brexiteers essentially betraying the DUP in the end and and perhaps maybe uh, overplaying their role as uh, as as power brokers in 2017 with Theresa May's deal. You know, is there a, is there a sense that someone who understands or is closer to Westminster could play more of a leadership role, while the first minister focuses more on the government of Northern Ireland, for example? I think that is very much the the feeling. I think it also could maybe be. I say I say this without having any sort of sourcing to suggest it, but I do kind of. I think maybe it could be to manage the different personalities as well um, mm. and the internal politics of it. But yeah, I think that it is mainly because there was just a lot of resentment of Arlene Foster leading the DUP from afar among that group of MPs. And I think they don't, they don't want that going forward. Yeah, I think not to sort of ride to the defence of Arlene Foster, but one of the underlying problems that she had as leader was that in order to safeguard Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom, you would have had to be willing to dilute the DUP's commitment to Brexit, which I don't think someone who had, you know, yeah, a, a former UUP defector, as Alva says, a, a moderate in the context of the DUP, uh, someone who had, <clears throat> you know, we shouldn't forget that Theresa May's bungling of the 2017 general election didn't just break the back of her premiership, strengthen Jeremy Corbyn's hold over the Labour Party. It also did save Arlene Foster's leadership because going into that election, she had, as a result, in part of the cash for scandal, which was a, mm. a, a very poorly devised renewable. I, I mean, God, I'm so glad and now she's left the scene. I will never again have to try and summarise cash for <laughs> in podcast form um but yeah basically a scheme which was designed to encourage people to invest in renewable uh, heating but because of the way it was designed even if you you didn't just get money for switching existing heating to renewable heating if you like when i'm going to buy a wood burner and just buy wood for the money you could get money from it which she was fairly or unfairly blamed for because she was the departmental minister at the time I think all of that just meant that the idea should have been able to go, actually, let's have a close alignment to the e- with the EU and and sort of deliver that, I think, was never going to be that likely. And because, because at the time, the parliamentary party here in Westminster was less moderate than the parliamentary party instalment, there was also this thing where if she had done that, it's not actually clear that she would have been if she would have been handing Theresa May a cheque and she couldn't cash. So there are a lot of reasons to split the role, but... It doesn't change like the, the underlying problems facing unionism are the Northern Ireland Protocol, the fact that as long as there was a situation where Westminster's pro-choice majority was just kind of blissfully unaware of, of the fact that none of these votes had any meaningful effect in Northern Ireland, then I think then the DUP would have continued to get what they wanted. But now you will actively have to be persuading MPs down here in Westminster for other political parties who are very committed to reproductive rights, very committed to being, understandably committed to being uh, on both, you know, reproductive rights and, and being opposed to conversion therapy to go, yeah, we're happy for that to be devolved in Northern Ireland, which I just don't think is going to happen. You'd have to be, you, you'd have a situation where the Conservative government would have to be willing to get closer to the EU in order to cause the Northern Ireland Protocol not to be a problem. 
And none of that has ever been in the gift of the leader of the DUP. Yeah, and I think that that's the striking thing about the two demands that were made of Arlene Foster in the various leaked no-confidence letters that were sent to her. The two demands are, as you say, Stephen, to get rid of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which creates that border down the Irish Sea, and then to get rid of the abortion laws. That was mandated last week. I think listeners will remember that more liberalised abortion rights for Northern Ireland were passed by Westminster last year but it's only within the past few weeks that Westminster has taken steps to force abortion services to be made available in Northern Ireland over and above the heads of the Northern Ireland Assembly which can't block it anymore so as you say it's kind of neither one is super achievable I'd be really interested to hear from listeners who maybe do see how that circle could be squared but I don't know which one is more difficult than the other, but it doesn't seem like the Northern Ireland abortion laws or the Northern Ireland protocol are going to change. I think that the the calculation has just been that what has to change is the rhetoric from the DUP about it and, and from the um, the DUP leader, because Arlene Foster you know, has been in this kind of bizarre situation of at one point championing the the Northern Ireland Protocol and then now having to to criticise it but never really being in a position to improve it very much and certainly I don't think being very willing to bring the whole thing down or not as willing as other people in her party so I think it's more to be seen to be doing something about those issues than to actually secure meaningful change and as I say I think it is not impossible that we could be seeing a storm in election sooner rather than later because of the fallout from this. I think a transition of power between one leader and another in a Northern Irish context always makes Stormont really unstable. And so I think it, you know, it's hard to see how whoever is elected to replace Arlene Foster could just swoop in seamlessly and be the new first minister of Northern Ireland. I think without some sort of stalemate for at least a while, even if they resolve it without an election eventually. And what are the implications of this if if there were to be an election? Something that I thought was really interesting when we were talking about this unrest in, in Northern Ireland earlier um, a few weeks ago was you were you were talking about how you know Brexit isn't the only reason and that there's a there's a there was a perfect storm of issues. And one of these was that it was very young sort of children who were involved in in the rioting, and, and that was a sort of symptom. Uh, not an excuse, but a, a, a symptom of some of the sort of social problems and the dislocation from sort of having a voice and, and being represented uh, by politicians um, among those communities. And, and there is disproportionate poverty in Northern Ireland. And I just wonder, you know, how much are the social issues in, in the country shifting things as well as fueling dissatisfaction with the leadership? And, and what kind of bearing could that have on elections, whether they're this year or next year? I think that It sort of depends on what difference a new leadership makes, because at the moment, the DUP is really bleeding votes on either side. So to the right, it's losing votes to the traditional unionist voice, the TUV, who are like really hardline loyalist unionist politicians who would take a similarly socially conservative line to the DUP grassroots. But then on the other side, the DUP are losing support to the moderate unaligned alliance party mainly um, and maybe a little bit to the UUP but they haven't been performing very well recently so I think it's it's you know if if this election was happening without a change of leader I think you, you would expect to see the DUP performing very badly because of 
all those issues that you mentioned and just this real feeling of like unionist alienation people feeling left behind and this mm. mixture of their sort of their unionist identity being left behind and not being respected but then also the way certain unionist communities are visibly more deprived than the nearby Catholic communities, for example. I think that those social issues play into that too. It's less clear, I think, whether all of these problems that unionism is facing, whether they would still be as manifest under a different leader. Um, I think that's the big question. I think there are questions for for Sinn Féin too a little bit but to a much lesser extent it's really a, I think it would be an election all about how unionism is doing in Northern Ireland and and whether the sort of centrist more moderate parties can scoop up some of that previous unionist support. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Anoush Shekelian and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounce You can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.